welcome to This Week in Video Games, episode 36. My name's Tom Kershaw, and this is a podcast all about the world of video games. So this week, I've been playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare, Return of the Obradin, and Sayonara Wild Hearts. Also this week, I've got some information on the PS5, and also an interview with Emily Grace Buck, formerly of Telltale Games, but now working on a great new game called The Waylanders. So it's a jam-packed show, let's get to it. Welcome to the show everyone, I hope you're well and you're having a good week. I'm pretty good this week and I've been playing a variety of games. So we're deep into October and the clocks have gone back. And uh, that's cool because there's an extra hour in bed this morning. But not so cool due to the lack of sunlight until early 2020 as the sun is going to go down now about 5pm. However, we've got Christmas to look forward to and the build up to Christmas is one of my favourite times of the year. I probably shouldn't be using the C word this early in October. It always goes super fast, but the evenings are drawing in and the games are coming out. And boy, are they coming out. So this week, we've had a few major releases with Call of Duty Modern Warfare and The Outer Worlds. So I'm not actually going to be talking about The Outer Worlds yet on the show, as I had to pick one of these games and I chose Call of Duty. However, I've heard great things about The Outer Worlds and I'm looking forward to playing that next week in time for the next podcast, so we look forward to that. Also, in the last few weeks there's been some interesting indie games come out, two of which I'm going to talk about today. So the first one is The Return of the Obra Dinn, which is the highly acclaimed game from Lucas Pope, which came out originally last year on PC and came out last week on consoles. So I picked it up on the Switch and it's a fantastic puzzle-solving adventure on board the Obra Dinn, the scene of many murders, and it's your job as an insurance investigator to figure out what happened. The second game was Sayonara Wild Hearts, which is like a pop music video game. It's absolutely fantastic. It's neon, the music is really good, uh, it's fast, it's rhythmic, it's really, really good fun. So yeah, we're going to be digging into that later on in the show. So right, that is enough waffle from me. Let's get into what I've been playing this week. There's you know, nothing simple about it. This is bigger now. Chemical weapons have fallen into terrorist hands. They could be anywhere. We need to move fast. What do you suggest? A business trip. Fire! Let's talk! I need your help. Because of this poison, my people have known something worse than war. Help us track him. If you stay, we can help you. But if you stay, you fight. Yelling out to The invaders of my country have no regard for human life. We live like this every day. Any further complications and we're at war. Breaking through now. We need a new extraction point fast. Save yourself, daughter. Join us. I lead soldiers. You train killers. But we are all killers here. No? How about you, Captain? Are you gonna let them die? Chemical weapons are now in the wild. Fix it. Where do we draw the line, Esfa? You draw the line. No, sir! Stop! Wherever you need it. What the hell is this? It's the off switch. We're all just pawns in this. Well, you speak for yourself. This is crazy. Yeah, but we're a little crazy, aren't we? The rules of engagement have changed. If you can't identify the target... You are the target. So first up this week, it's Call of Duty Modern Warfare. And Modern Warfare is back in 2019 and remade from the classic of 2007. This time it marks an evolution of the series as the FPS market is hugely different than it was 12 years ago. 
So back then, Call of Duty was the leader, the trendsetter, but now it's playing catch-up to other games like Fortnite, Apex Legends and Destiny. So Call of Duty Modern Warfare has been rebuilt from the ground up and it feels both modern and fresh. I've been focused on the campaign during my time with the game since we missed a campaign in Call of Duty last year. It's a welcome return to the game mode. So this Call of Duty campaign feels a little bit more subtle than years gone by. Sure, we've got Captain Price and the gang and the game chops and changes locations much like we've seen before. However, it's the story of a brother and sister, Farah and Hadir, that takes centre stage. There's a civil war in their fictional home country of Urzikstan, and they want it liberated from foreign forces. Captain Price and the Urzikstan siblings are joined by CIA operative Alex and Carl Garrick. There's the Call of Duty set pieces that we've seen before, which scream quality and cost at you through the screen. So no doubt Activision have invested in this game, particularly with their game engine, as that's been built from the ground up. That makes the environments look absolutely gorgeous. However, it's not the set pieces which are front and centre this time, as Farah takes the lead. There's a variety of game styles here, rather than simply just running and gunning. There's tense moments, where members of the public have bombs strapped to them. You're creeping through houses with night vision, stealthily taking out enemies as you sweep from floor to floor. There's moments of huge action and scale which lead to draw-dropping moments you can feel every bullet, bomb and aircraft as they fly close overhead. There's a weight to the guns that seems like any other game and they seem to reach out from you from the screen and make you feel the action. And the variety of weapons here too is really, really impressive. So it's an enjoyable campaign with a mix of shocking moments. There's one example where Price throws a civilian out of range as the bomb that's strapped to him goes off. There's impactful gameplay and immersive audio. The music, the sound effects, they hit hard and really draw you into the action. Although enjoyable with some high-octane encounters, it does fall into familiar formulaic territory and doesn't evolve the campaign mode as much as it could have done. There is a really unique scene where you have to um, help a young lady escape from a building by navigating from security camera to security camera. So there's loads of terrorists around and she's trying to get out of the building with a key card that you need to get into another building. And she has to navigate her way around the building. So that, that was a really nice little innovation and uh, really, really good stuff. I did encounter a few performance issues while I was playing which led to a frustrating amount of time fixing things as my controller on PC kept disconnecting. Something which hasn't happened during other games before. The graphics also didn't seem as smooth as I'm used to, and leading me to lower the game settings to try and resolve the problem. Eventually I did find a middle ground where everything worked again, but it was a bit of a frustration that I could have done without. I've focused on the main campaign mode so far, and I haven't jumped into PvP, but I'm looking forward to doing so. And there's also a co-op mode too, so lots to look forward to. So I've really enjoyed my time with Call of Duty Modern Warfare so far, but what do you think of Call of Duty Modern Warfare? Send me an email on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com or tweet me at TWIVGpodcast on Twitter. Well that's it for Call of Duty Modern Warfare and next up it's the return of the Obra Dinn. Go. 
Searching for clues aboard a ship that's come back from a disastrous journey with nothing but a notebook and a magic pocket watch. Return of the Oberdin is a unique mystery-solving adventure that will captivate and delight you. So Return of the Oberdin is by Lucas Pope and is creator of 2013's Papers, Please. This was a game about stamping immigration papers in a totalitarian future. Return of the Oberdin is a follow-up originally released on PC in 2018, but now has been ported to consoles, including Nintendo Switch, Xbox One and PlayStation 4. So the Oberdin has been lost at sea in 1803, but four years later it's back, but minus its crew. Something, or a series of somethings, clearly didn't go well at sea, as the crew are all dead. As someone working for an insurance company, it's your job to go aboard the ship and try and piece together the clues with a notebook, the ship's manifest, and a mysterious watch that will show the details of the moment of death when activated near a dead body. Return of the Oberdin is full of puzzles and there's approximately 60 crew members' deaths to figure out and slowly piece together the overall story of the crew and what happened. The core concept of the game is to study the details you have in the ship's manifest and your surroundings to deduce the crew's fate. So as well as the manifest and the notes, you have access to a pocket watch that allows you to observe the moment of death for a crewmate in a lot of detail. Activating the watch may reveal details like someone being shot, and you get to observe the incident in a still 3D rendered scene, allowing you to walk around the incident and gather more detail to add to your deductions. Matching up the people in the memory scene to the photos in the ship's manifest allows you to piece together the relationships of those on board the Oberdin. So matching up the photos of who did what with your memory analysis allows you to start filling in the gaps in your notes, which ultimately leads you to solve the overarching puzzle of the Oberdin. So this is one interconnected puzzle that will sometimes have you bang your head against the wall. You'll walk around the ship, gathering clothes, wondering how these morsels fit together, but do stick at it. Return of the Oberdin may seem tricky at first, but keep going, gathering, collecting, and those aha moments will come, and when they do, it's a hugely satisfying experience. So as you gather and deduce from learning more about the dead crew of the ship, and the main story unfurls before your eyes. It has dark tones, and the story is captivating, and digs deep into your mind, painting a perfect picture. Return of the Oberdin is a unique art style with a one-bit monochrome style that looks like an early Apple Mac. So this art style complements the minimal game perfectly, allowing the story and gameplay to shine. The music, also composed by Lucas Pope, is catchy and accompanies you having to look through your clues repeatedly. So this is a very specific and deliberate game, and with everything in its place and nothing wasted, be it something placed on board the ship, right down to the graphics or the music. Lucas Pope has emerged over the last 10 years as a talented designer who can create detailed and surprising worlds. Your world, in this case, is contained in the Obra Dinn, and throughout the game, it doesn't hold your hand so the puzzles can be challenging, but that adds up to a really satisfying experience. So, Return of the Obra Dinn is a joy to play with a unique art style and full of memorable moments. From the moment you solve your first clue, you tease to find the next one, and from there I was in, and I couldn't put the game down. This was Many's Game of the Year in 2018 and now has been breathed new life into it in 2019 with a release on consoles. It's definitely one to check out. So the developer is Lucas Pope and it's available on PC, Nintendo Switch, Xbox One and PS4. It originally came out on October the 18th, 2018 on PC and it came out on October the 19th, 2019 on consoles. And I gave the game a final score of 84 out of 100. So what do you think of Return of the Oberdin? Send me an email on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com or tweet me at TWIVG podcast on Twitter. Well, that's it for the Return of the Oberdin. And next up, we got some details from the PlayStation 5. So the PlayStation 5 has been officially announced in a rather unconventional way. Gone are the big events. The flashy presentation and the social media reveal, Sony's partnered with Wired to give away the prize details we've all been waiting for. No matter, we've got the details, the name, the release date and some technical specs. Also, we can look forward to an exciting winter in 2020, what with the new Xbox coming out too. So first of all, credit has to go to Wired and Peter Rubin specifically for all the details found here. Rather than release the details themselves, Sony has chosen two careful moments in time here in 2019 to release those details about the PS5, both through Wired magazine. 
So Sony didn't turn up at this year's E3 conference and have since launched their own regular video updates called State of Play. It's not yet clear if Sony will return to the next year's E3 or if they're going to continue to reveal details through State of Play, but I would imagine being on stage and developing that hype as uh, E3 does still has some value to the company. So Sony has finally officially named their next generation console as the PlayStation 5, uh, which totally makes sense after 2, 3 and 4. <laughs> Some people are kind of hoping it was just going to be called the PlayStation. As the PlayStation 5, it may not come as a surprise to some Sony fans, uh, given their previous consoles, uh, but it's good to know the console has an official name and uh, it makes sense. So here's looking at you, uh, Nintendo Wii. I mean, what the hell was that name all about? <laughs> also, we've got a date for the console as well, or at least a range, which is going to be holiday 2020. So technical details have also been released uh, relating to the PS5 CPU, the ray tracing capabilities and the SSD as well. So these details were covered in part in April 2019 when the initial reports came out. However, Mark Cerny wanted to clarify some of the details. So first of all, the PS5 is going to have a CPU based on AMD's Ryzen line with 8, which is going to make it an absolute beast of a console. So the PS5 GPU is going to be a custom Navi GPU that supports hardware level ray tracing. Regarding audio, the PS5 is going to have 3D audio capabilities which Mark Cerny believes is going to be a significant improvement over the PS4. And it will support up to 8K resolutions including a 4K Blu-ray player supporting the PS5's 100GB optical discs. With regards to the solid state drive, there's going to be an improvement in load time speed but also efficiency that this can offer developers. So this will allow some less duplication of assets in the in-game files, allowing for a faster read and render. So Sony says, if you look at a game like Marvel's Spider-Man, there's some pieces of data duplicated 400 times on the hard drive. So this is going to allow developers to utilize the space much more effectively, which could include building more detailed game worlds. Sony has also said they may allow for a more configurable game installation as their approach to storage differs with the PS5. So this could include installing parts of the game rather than the whole thing. So Cerny said, rather than treating games like a big block of data, we're allowing for a finer grain access to the data. So that could mean installing the multiplayer mode, maybe then the campaign mode, but perhaps installing it when you complete it as you don't need it anymore. So the UI is getting an upgrade too from what could be described as a fairly static experience on the PS4 to a more dynamic one with the PS5. At the moment you can check in with games in the dashboard before you log into the game, but once you do you can lose that connection with your friends list or events that you could maybe hop into a single player mission or other multiplayer matches. So Cerny said again multiplayer game servers are going to provide the console with this set of joinable activities and single player games will provide information like what missions you could do, what rewards you might receive for completing them and all of those choices are going to be visible in the UI. So as a player, you can just jump right into whatever you like. So that's good. That's a nice little improvement over the uh, sort of fairly static, fairly bland and very, very blue UI of the PS4. Another big update with the PS5 is going to be the controller. So the yet unnamed device, although likely to be confirmed as the DualShock 5, it's got new haptic feedback capabilities which will allow for a more immersive feel to the gaming. So adaptive triggers, they're going to allow you to feel varying levels of resistance, such as pulling back an arrow or making a machine gun feel different to a shotgun. So this is going to allow for a more refined feel to games. For example, if you're walking through a desert, through a jungle or an ice level, that's going to feel different in your hands. So all of these new features add up to a more immediate, detailed and immersive experience. The GPU will lead to machine learning advanced experiences in gaming that we've not even yet thought of. However, it's going to take some time for some of these things to bed in with developers as Sony release new features. They're going to need to be given the time to explore and understand these features to put them into practice. So in 2017 and 2018, we really saw the fruit of the capabilities of the PlayStation 4 through games like Horizon Zero Dawn, God of War, Monster Hunter World and Red Dead Redemption 2. So again, it's going to take developers some time to understand the toolset of what they got and then realise those detailed game worlds that this kind of technology can promise. So PlayStation 5 has a name, has a date and some specs. Next up, it's time to see the games. So it's likely we'll get ports of the late PS4 titles to early PS5 releases. 
I for one hope PlayStation do come back to E3 next year, all singing, all dancing and show off their wares and the games they have in developed in the way that only Sony can at E3. And thanks again to Wired for these details for this feature. What do you think about the announcements of the PS5 so far? What do you think of the controller, the ray tracing capabilities or the SSD? Is it going to really impact your gaming life? Let me know and send me an email on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com or tweet me at TWIVGpodcast on Twitter. Well that's it for the PlayStation 5. Next up I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking to Emily Grace Buck and uh, she's working on a fantastic new game called The Waylanders. So let's get into that interview. So welcome back to This Week in Video Games, and I am here with Emily Grace Buck. So uh, welcome, Emily. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. How's your weekend going? All good? It's good. It's been pretty busy. Um, I'm currently here in Spain working on The Waylanders. We're recording actors for the project at this point, which is one of my favorite uh, points of development. So it's all good. So could you tell our listeners a little bit more about The Waylanders? Absolutely. The Waylanders is a tactical RPG being developed by Gato Studio, a Spanish studio that up until this point has mostly done adventure games. It's very heavily inspired by Dragon Age Origins and some of the other earlier Bioware works. Um, I'm currently the narrative director on the project, and before I stepped in, Mike Laidlaw, who had been the creative director on the Dragon Age games, was in my position. He helped design and create a lot of the world that the game is going to show to all of you. Um, there's high fantasy, there's weird RPG goofy jokes, <laughs> there's lots and lots of romance options and a big fun cast of companions for you to explore and get to know. That, that, that sounds great. And so, so where, where's the game set? And can you, can you kind of describe the, the world um, to us? Absolutely. So The Waylanders is based on the history and legends of the Spanish Celts, um, which is a little bit different than how most people tend to think of the Celts. Um, when you say Celts, most people think of Ireland, Scotland. Um, but there is a set of legends and history here in Galicia in northwestern Spain that the Celts actually began in this region before emigrating to Ireland. And we are looking at that period of history and drawing very strongly from Galician folklore, which is a lot of fun. Um, there are even a number of historical sites here in Acruña and the surrounding area that have been uh, shockingly well-preserved for a few thousand years. Um, and I've been able to go on site, see some of what life might have been like for people living here around that time. And uh, we're actually straight up modeling some of those locations right into the game. So you'll be able to explore them too. So what, what's, um, what's your role on the, on the project? Are you, are you looking after the, the, the uh, narration aspect of it? Yes, um, I'm the narrative director on the project. So I'm doing the majority of the script writing and character development, uh, story development. I'm also directing the voice actors. Um, the other writers working with me on this project are Chris Avalon, who worked on Fallout New Vegas and more RPGs than I know how to name. He's had a hand in a whole bunch of different things. Um, and then another uh, Spanish writer named Josue Monchan, who's handling much of the codex entries and that type of thing. Um, but I'm overseeing the department, which is an absolute joy. Uh, these gents are so talented. <laughs> It, it must be it must be wonderful to um, to kind of um, be on site in Spain as well and see these um, see these sites um, like the you know um, that are you know hundreds and hundreds of years old. It must it must be a real inspiration for you? It's awe inspiring, honestly. Um, especially I'm American. We don't, with the exception of a few Native American sites, we don't have places that are multiple thousand years old for you to go and wander around in. And I've always been a huge European history nerd 
anyway. When I was an undergrad, my minor was in medieval and Renaissance studies. So getting to actually go and like, you know, put my hands in the dirt in places where people were walking around multiple hundreds, sometimes even thousand years ago um, and trying to tell a variation of their stories is really exciting for me. And I understand in The Waylanders, um, you can step between time. And I was wondering if you could describe uh, that mechanic a little bit uh, for the audience. For sure. So um, the Celtic Age is not the only one that we're exploring in The Waylanders. You will, about halfway through the game, gain the ability to jump between Celtic Spain and then medieval Spain. So at the height of the rise of Catholicism and the Inquisition. And as you can imagine, Spain looks pretty different once you get to that era than it did um, back when it was smaller societies of Celts. Um, So there's lots of really interesting things to explore as you jump between those two time periods, like politics and religion and the racial makeup of the people here in Spain. Uh, between those two times, um, and also their opinion on magic, because this is a fantasy game. There's totally magic, monsters, magical corruption, all of that. Um, we also have some characters who are, are immortal and some characters who reincarnate when you time travel. So you'll get to meet back up with friends who you kind of kissed goodbye a thousand years ago and get to see again, see how they've changed over time, and then find some of your other party members who have reincarnated into different people who are now affected by the social politics of the medieval era instead of the Celtic era. Um, So there's a lot to explore with that. And technically, as a narrative designer, it's a fun challenge to make sure that the world is responding because little things you do in the Celtic era can have pretty big ripples a thousand years later that you may or may not have been expecting. Um, that must pose a, a, a really interesting challenge, like you say. Um, not only is it a, an RPG with a lot of branching narrative, but you've got the kind of overlapping time periods and, like you say, the ripple effect from one era to another. That must be a, must be a real challenge. Oh, definitely. It's kind of a branching narrative on nightmare mode. <laughs> and, um, I did this to myself and I'm <laughs> happily embracing it it's a lot of fun and um, is, uh, is working in, in the RPG setting is that something um, new for you um, and how, how are you sort of finding that sort of I mean so I worked at Telltale Games for a number of years um, before they went out of business last fall but and Telltale Games are they're I hesitate to call them adventure games or RPGs. They're kind of in their own strange niche of cinematic, interactive story games. Um, They're not quite visual novels either. But a lot of the design is very similar. A lot of the branching story planning is very similar. Um, Also... I've been a huge fan of RPGs like this for a very long time. The Bioware types of games that we're inspired by on this project are some of my favorites, and I don't even want to admit how many hundreds and hundreds of hours I've sunk into games like that over my life. Um, I've also been a big D&D and other tabletop RPG player for a very long time, and planning out tabletop sessions especially if you're working on campaigns that last for multiple years. And I'm lucky enough that I've had some groups of friends devoted enough to come back for, you know, dozens of sessions of the same storyline. That experience transfers better than I think most people would believe it might. And um, in, so in The Waylanders, you, you mentioned some of the inspirations like um, Dragon Age and uh, the, the Bioware games. So in, in The Waylanders, do you have a party that you can interact with? You sure do. You have a group of nine different party members 
that you can bring at any time throughout the story. Uh, you can bring up to five of them with you in any moment and who you choose to bring on different missions will sometimes allow you different outcomes on those missions. Um, and all of the party members, you know, have banter with one another. You can develop relationships with each one of them, romantic or otherwise. Um, not, not every single one of the party members is romanceable. And there are some characters in the game who are not party members who are also romance options. But um, that core cast of characters, you'll have the opportunity to get to know them pretty well if you're interested and want to bring them along with you. And how how does the party um, mechanic work across the different timelines? You mentioned before that one one effect in um, in in one timeline can uh, or one action in one timeline can affect another. Um, mm-hmm. So does the party evolve over the timelines? Definitely. So when you encounter your immortal party members in the medieval era, they're going to look and act pretty different than when you knew them in the Celtic era. They're, like I said, uh, more than a thousand years older. People change (laughs) a lot (laughs) during that amount of time. I would assume um, we don't have any (laughs) evidence to work off of there. So this is imagination on my part. Um, But yes, so there'll be pretty different variations on the character than you saw when they were younger. And then for the characters who reincarnate, it's, essentially an entirely different person but with the soul of the person you once knew and we're still developing exactly how reuniting with them is going to work but it's a mechanic that i'm very excited about and i think people will really enjoy that's really cool and and you so you took um the waylanders to gamescom uh, this year and uh, showed it around there How, how was gamescom for you So I didn't personally go to Gamescom, but quite a few members of the team, including our creative director, were there. And it's where we were able to launch our first big cinematic trailer for the game. And it was extremely well received. I was thrilled. Um, IGN reported on it, as did a few of the other big outlets. Uh, Lots and lots of people watched the trailer on YouTube, and the reception seemed pretty overwhelmingly positive, which is all you can really ask for. Um, I was particularly excited about it because as a cinematic trailer, we actually built most of it in engine. So what you're seeing in the trailer is what the game is going to look like. Um, so often with cinematic trailers, you see a much, I hesitate to say fancier, but that's, that's really the right word version, um, of what the game might look like. Uh, that's not what anything in the game is going to appear like when you buy it. Um, but for us, that's, that's what the game looks like. And I had the privilege of writing and directing the trailer as well. So it was, it was a good time. Um, I can't wait until people can see more of the game. Um, it had been shown off at Gamescom the year before too, shortly before I joined the project, but Back then, it was just a tiny demo, um, and every year now, we have so much more to show, which is good, because this game is supposed to launch in 2020, so <laughs> by next year, maybe we'll have the whole thing. <laughs> and, um, well, that, that, that brings me on to my next question. I mean, how and, how and when can players get their hands on the game? We ran a Kickstarter in the fall of last year that was successful, so a number of players have already purchased their copies ahead of time. Um, There's also a board game variation of the Waylanders that the Kickstarter rewards for that are now shipping and the game will become widely widely available soon. That's the board game. Um, The video game, we are aiming for a 2020 release, um, but you may see something from us before then, I can't say exactly what because we're saving that as a surprise. But tantalizing keep an details, eye out. Emily. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It sounds uh, it sounds like a, a, 
uh, a great project. I've I've seen the video from uh, Gamescom 2019, and the game looks uh, looks really really exciting, really interesting, and also telling kind of new stories from um, uh, another uh, you know a, a, another perspective that perhaps we haven't seen in video games before. So really really yeah. excited about the game coming out. Thank you. Me too. Um, I think I'm really looking forward to more fantasy games coming from places that you don't necessarily expect. I'm hoping that The Witcher really opened up a floodgate for that. Um, people didn't know that they wanted to see a Polish fantasy game until that series came out and did unbelievably well and kind of reminded us that it's not just elves out there. Um, although there are elves in the Witcher games, they're different, right? Um, not every single fantasy has to be based off of Tolkien. There's a whole world full of myths and legends out there that we can draw from. And though I'm not from Spain, I'm American, once again, it's lovely to be able to work with this team and bring the stories they grew up with to life so that other people will be able to see them. Like, I, I knew almost nothing about this aspect of European history before I joined this project. And like I said, I studied medieval Renaissance studies in school. Um, so I wouldn't expect other people to have heard of this ever. Um, we've got some cool and different monsters, some fun and different ways magic works. It, it should hopefully be a really good time I hope people will like it. I'm saying I hope a lot, but that's kind of where I am at this point. You know, when the game's here <laughs> in development, you just cross your fingers and pray that what you're trying to make come across will be what people feel and see when they finally get to play it. Well, I've, I, for one, I'm certainly looking forward to the game. And uh, so, Emily, we've we've talked a little bit about the, the Waylanders, the the exciting new project that you're working on. I wanted to shift focus a little bit um, to uh, Telltale Games. Now, I, I know you've spoken a lot about it over the last year, um, and it's been um, over a year now since uh, the closure of Telltale Games. And for, for those who don't know, um, could you describe what happened? Sure. So. First of all, Telltale Games was a slightly larger than mid-size game developer that had been open for, I think, 13 years at the time of closure and had made adventure games and cinematic storytelling games like The Walking Dead and Batman. And we had, for a number of years, been putting out games that were kind of similar in mechanics and feel. All of the projects that I worked on at Telltale kind of took a lead from the original Walking Dead series. And the main mechanic was you got to make four choices as a timer ran down um, to decide what you wanted to say or where the story was going to go. And our story, unfortunately, came to a crashing halt um, when the company went out of business uh, quite literally overnight. Um, and about 250 of us got laid off uh, with no severance. Uh, just all of a sudden, we, we got called to an all-hands meeting that morning and were told that our journey had ended by our CEO. Um, and being in the United States, too, we had the added bonus of our healthcare ended about a week and a half later. Uh, it was not a good time for any of us. I watched my entire community just fall apart almost instantly. Um, in that room, people were crying. You know, we got our last paychecks on paper. Everybody was rushing to the bank to deposit them because we wanted to make sure that they'd go through. Um, but yeah, it's been almost a year now and just about everyone um, because then the other 25 employees who hadn't been laid off that first day got laid off just a couple weeks later. Um, just about everyone has found some kind of job now. A number of people have been laid off at least one more time since then. Oh. That's kind of the nature of the video game industry at this point. Um, 
when I gave a talk about the layoff just about a month afterwards, um, it was called the human cost of game development. And I did it at Sweden game conference. I said that human beings in the game industry were so often looked at as just replaceable cogs in the machine and the industry still looks at people that way a year later. Um, it's evidenced by how many people I know from Telltale who have been laid off at least once since then. Um, Blizzard had a round of layoffs where they laid off about 900 people the exact same day that their CEO reported uh, the best earnings they'd ever had. Um, it's an ongoing problem that I'm happy I was able to raise awareness of and that our situation was able to raise awareness of, but it's, uh, it's unfortunately not, not solved yet. So it's something that I continue to talk about when people give me the chance. So thank you for giving me that chance on this podcast. And what is it about the, the, the industry? Um, because there's, uh, you know, there's been a few high profile cases of, uh, in, in 2019 specifically, of um, layoffs and crunch culture um, with um, there's high profile examples with Bioware and Anthem, uh, Rockstar um, and Red Dead Redemption 2 with the kind of crunch culture. But the, also yeah. you mentioned in your in your talk with the human cost of game development, I think you outlined four companies between September and October where um, people had just been laid off. Uh, and I, I was just wondering, what, what do you think it is about the, the industry that... Um, that makes it this way. So what's really funny is that the industry is actually experiencing fewer layoffs and less crunch culture than it ever has. It's just that people are finally starting to care. Um, this type of layoff used to be even more common. If we look at game companies in the late 90s and early 2000s, they would often lay off almost their entire staff after a successful game shipped and just go down to a tiny skeleton crew and then rehire as many people as they could once they got to the right place in development. And everyone just kind of rolled with it. It was seen as the way things worked. Um, there was a letter, gosh, almost a decade ago now, called EA Spouse that got a lot of traction at the time where it was um, the spouse of someone who had worked in video games talking about how they'd had to move every few years um, that there was no stability in their life for them or for their kids. And that is getting better. Um, and it's partially getting better because people are starting to realize that this is an issue. Um, I, I don't think gamers knew before that any of this was happening or if they knew they really didn't care and they're starting to. People are starting to speak out about like, hey, this is kind of screwed up. Maybe people shouldn't be working 80-hour weeks just to make a video game. <laughs> Maybe people should have a little bit more stability in their lives. Maybe they should know where their next paycheck is coming from. Maybe you shouldn't be able to just drop them um, at the drop of a hat. So at the same time that it looks really, really bleak, Right now, because there have been all of these high-profile cases of crunch and layoffs this past year, the fact that crunch and layoffs are seen as something that could go high-profile is wonderful. <laughs> because, yeah, just a few years ago, they're not things that were reported on at all. And um, it, it, it's almost the, the, the evolution of, of work and the, the times that we live in ourselves at the minute with workers' rights coming to the forefront, mental health being a much more kind of acceptable um, topic to be discussed in society today. So hopefully we can make some great strides. Um, but what, what do you think we can do to improve the way that the video games industry um, works on and delivers projects? I think some improvements have already been made. For example, uh, Naughty Dog just delayed the release of The Last of Us 2. Um, and the fan response was overwhelmingly, great, take the time you need to make it a good game. 
responding like that to delays is one of the most helpful things that gamers and gaming fans can do because it says, hey, we're with you. We want you to take care of yourselves. We want you to make the best game possible. We don't want you to burn yourselves out trying to put something out for us immediately. Because if we think back five or six years ago, when games would get delayed, people would get death threats. <laughs> um, it would be, how dare you not bring this game out for me now? You promised me. So that has been a huge cultural shift in how gamers respond to the game industry. And if that kind of thing can continue and become even more common, it's going to make a huge difference for us. I mean, we look at situations where um, games come out that aren't perfect or that have issues. Like, for example, some of the most recent Bioware games like Mass Effect Andromeda and Anthem um, fans were furious that they weren't as polished as they had hoped. And some of those fans singled out individual developers and in some cases drove them off of social media and drove them out of the industry. And when you get that on top of already being crunched and having job insecurity, it just makes the problem so much worse. So what people can do is just su support us, be nice to developers, <laughs> know that we are trying to make the best thing we possibly can for you, that we're all kind of on the same team here trying to get things done. Um, the antagonistic relationship between gamers and devs needs to stop. Um, and if we look even further into the future, some people have started to raise a desire for like almost fair trade stickers on their games to say like, hey, this was made without crunch. Hey, this oh, was wow. made without layoffs. And I think we're quite a number of years off from anything like that happening, but it's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's something to keep advocating for and pushing towards. Um, another way that people can help is by supporting game dev attempts to unionize. A few countries already have unions for game developers. The UK is actually one of them. Um, game Workers Unite has organized in the UK and game devs can join those unions um, and people who are fans of games can, you know, retweet their tweets, <laughs> vocally support them, uh, let them know that they see those efforts happening. Um, unionization in the United States is a far more complex animal, um, but people are trying and just having public support for workers seeking a better life is it's huge i i can't overstate that um it makes such a big difference so with with the hindsight that you've got now um having gone through um the, the sort of last 18 months and you know this there's, there's it obviously sounded like a, a terrible time um uh, that, that, you've, that you've been through, but with the hindsight that you've got now, what's the most valuable thing do you think you've learned over the last uh, 18 months? At the end of the day, it's just a video game. It may seem like the most wonderful piece of art that you have ever worked on. It may seem like it requires all of your attention, all of your love, all of your intelligence, all of your energy, but it's just a game. <laughs> Games are great and they bring a lot of joy to people, but at the end of the day, if you burn yourself out making one game, it's going to be harder to make the next one. So go home, sleep, take care of yourself, eat healthy, go to the gym, have friends outside of video games, do things that don't have anything to do with your work. Try and look for some kind of work-life balance so that you can keep making games or keep doing whatever makes you happy because uh, I've watched for some people the right choice for them was to get the hell out of this industry and I don't blame any of them um, things are changing for the better but they're changing slowly and if what you do is making you unhappy or sick or just frankly isn't bringing you joy 
you can do something else and you're not a failure for that. That's okay. Um, so I wanted to thank you for talking about the Telltale Games uh, saga. I, I, I know you, you, must, um, you must have talked about it a lot, so I, I appreciate you um, sharing those details with us. Uh, I wanted to shift um, onto the games industry a little bit. And uh, what, what's the biggest change that you've seen in the games industry during your time in it? The biggest change I personally have seen in the games industry is that now people are graduating with degrees in video games. <laughs> that didn't exist a decade ago. People weren't going to university and graduating with a degree in video games expecting to get a job in video games. People are now coming into the industry much better informed and in some cases much better prepared than a lot of their predecessors, or more specifically prepared. Um, because some of these game programs too, people graduate from them with the expectation that they're suddenly going to get a job in games, but a lot of what they were learning was theoretical or extremely outdated. And then they get into the industry and the industry doesn't quite know what to do with them. Um, the industry spent a lot of time over the past bunch of years adjusting to figuring out what to do with all of these graduates. And it's, it's shifting. Um, I don't know if it's shifting fast enough, um, but every single year it seems to get a little bit better. Um, and I'm really intrigued to watch as we continue to catch up to this influx of people with degrees in what we do. And, um, Talking about the sort of biggest change in the last um, five years, what, what do you think the biggest impact will be in the next five years? I'm very interested to see what games as a service continues to do to the industry <laughs> and also the indie apocalypse. Um, there are more games being made and released and sold than ever before. And not all of them are making money, actually, especially when we look at numbers on Steam. A lot of them are making uh, almost no money whatsoever. And at the same time, many of the AAA studios, the juggernaut games that they're releasing, uh, anticipate people continuing to play them for years and years, for hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um, and there's only so much time in the day that people can play video games. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how that's going to continue to affect what's being made. The bigger studios more and more are making online multiplayer games, whereas indie studios are making shorter, artsier, single-player pieces. There's a huge divide there, and it seems that there's less and less living in kind of that middle ground space, which is where Waylanders is trying to live. Um, and when we look at things like Apple Arcade and Stadia, that is a whole another set of um, possible changes coming forward. When we consider Netflix subscription-like models for gaming, where is that going to go? I actually don't know, and I'm really interested to watch and find out because people are going to design their games differently depending on how they think those games are going to sell so that they can best monetize them. Um, it, things are going to change, and I don't quite know how yet. One of the interesting things with, say, Spotify, when since that's come out, is the, um, I guess, the... Um, change of listening habits from the audience to from listening mm -hmm. to albums all the way through on a cd or a, or a, i mean god going way back on a tape <laughs> yeah um and now listening to individual songs and playlists um uh, you mentioned there the evolution of um designing the types of games uh, that's a really interesting that, that's a really interesting point do you, do you think people are going to make shorter games or how do you think that will all pan out I mean, right now, the trend seems to be to make longer games with seasons, mm. <laughs> which is really interesting because in some ways it relies almost on the episodic kind of model that we saw coming out of Telltale, but it's for games that continue to evolve and change as people keep playing them. I think 
one of the most successful examples of that we see right now is Destiny 2. Um, they drop story content that then also changes the core gameplay a couple times a year. Um, and that's been very successful, and it seems like a lot of other people are trying to mimic that. Of course, that's it's not completely new when you look at MMOs like WoW or even more recent ones like Elder Scrolls Online. They do that type of thing, too. Um, but it's interesting to watch it happening with shooters. I think um, Luke Smith, he, he, he was a big, um, the, the game director over there at Bungie for, for Destiny 2. He was a massive WoW player um, um, when, he was, when he was younger. And I think with Destiny 2, they were maybe a little bit restricted on how far down the MMO path they could have gone when Activision were in the picture. And mm -hmm. uh, now, now that they're kind of um, now they're they're on their own, it's yeah, like you say, it's really interesting the the episodic uh, or the season based structure on this kind of um, evolving world. It's uh, yeah, really, really interesting. You're talking my language. I love this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things I love about it as a narrative designer is that it almost allows you to indulge in like fan work based off of your own work. Um, yeah. so before I started actually getting paid to write video games, I was very into writing fan fiction and, you know, kind of the impetus to write fan fiction is so often the piece ends and you want more, <laughs> you want other stories for these characters. So you turn to a piece of paper and you write them down yourself. And now we're in a world where for people creating game narrative, they can continue to do that with their own characters if their games are successful. Um, they can come up with new stories for them. They can change the world. They can continue developing it. It's a lot more like, like a TV show in some cases too. Um, and that's, that's interesting. That's different. Um, and yeah, I don't completely know where it's going to go yet, but I'm enjoying that part of the ride at the moment. Emily, I've, I've taken up enough of your time today and uh, I really appreciate you talking about the Waylanders, um, your your time at Telltale Games and also a little bit about your um, experience in the industry. So I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to talk to us on This Week in Video Games. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Well, that was me there talking to Emily Grace Buck. And thank you once again, Emily, for taking the time and talk to us on This Week in Video Games. Really, really appreciate it. One of the best parts of this job is to sit down with a range of game developers and talk about their experiences and their projects and, uh, and what they're building. And so thank you once again, Emily. It was an absolute pleasure to speak to you. So next up, I've got a fantastic little indie gem called Sayonara Wild Hearts. Fast, fluid, and beautiful. These are three words you might use to describe Sayonara Wild Hearts, a new pop album video game. So Sayonara Wild Hearts is a euphoric music video dream where you get to ride motorcycles, skateboards, and have dance battles and shoot lasers. So at the core of the game is a story of a young woman with a broken heart where the balance in the universe has been disturbed. A diamond butterfly appears in her dreams and leads her through a highway in the sky where she finds her other self, the masked biker called the Fool. So travelling through futuristic cities, dark forests and electric deserts, the Fool sets out to find the harmony in the universe. Hidden away in the hearts of Little Death and her star-crossed allies, the Dancing Devils, Howling Moons, Stereo Lovers and Hermit 64. Well, that that is one hell of a mouthful. You've really just got to kind of see listen and experience this game to really kind of understand 
what's going on. It is truly, truly fantastic. So as a fan of Churches and also Gris, this game is a treat. So not in terms of gameplay, uh, I know Gris was a platformer, but in terms of a visually stunning game based on the anguish of the main character and the sheer kind of visual and uh, audio experience. So Sayonara Wild Hearts is unlike any other game I've played with its trippy mix of pop music, visual design and fluid movement. It's great fun and full of emotion too. So as soon as you start up the game, you're thrown into the action and the controls are relatively straightforward, so you just use the analogue stick and the A button, and I was playing on Nintendo Switch, although this game is available on Apple Arcade too. So as I said, yeah, you use the A button for actions uh, when you're prompted. So whether you're speeding along down the road or on the back of a motorcycle, or going through a magical forest on the back of a stag, the game feels fluid and drives you forward in the dreamy music and rhythm. So the aim of the game is to avoid obstacles, collect as many points as possible and beat any opposing enemies to get in your way, and in the most stylish way possible. So this may involve dodging out of the way every now and again, but the boss fights are some of the best battles in the game, where you face off against a few characters pressing the action button in time to the music, dodge out of the way, fight them with swords, and even at one point fight a multi-headed wolf. Timing is key to getting the most points which will give you bronze, silver or gold ratings for completing each level. Sayonara Wild Hearts looks fantastic. Fluid, smooth, fast and colourful. Character animations are slick and the world the characters live in is gorgeous and gives off an air of cool at every step. It's even got Queen Latifah in the game who provides the narration. So the characters and the environments are so stylish they're bathed in neon, blues and pinks. So the music in the game is front and centre and one of the stars, so dreamy, Techno-pop fills your ears as you navigate through neon cities and forests. So you can tell why it's been called a pop music video game, as sometimes it feels like an experience rather than a game. Sayonara Wild Hearts is on rails, and we pick up items on the road or the ground. Looping around winding tunnels or jumping to get the extra point hearts is key to getting gold ratings in levels. So if you bump into something and die, then the game is fairly forgiving as to where you sort of restart. The game is an overwhelmingly positive experience. It's relatively short, but an entirely memorable one. The stylish characters, the music and the art make this game a worthwhile purchase. And if you've got Apple Arcade, you can get this as part of the package. Coming in at roughly two hours for a playthrough, it's easy to play in a single sitting. So it's an absolutely fantastic game. Really, really enjoyed it. And I definitely recommend Sayonara Wild Hearts. But what did you think? Send me an email on podcast at thespeakingvideogames.com or tweet me at TWIVGpodcast on Twitter. And I think what I'll do is post up the footage of my playthrough on the YouTube channel. So go to YouTube, search This Week in Video Games and you'll see Sayonara Wild Hearts there. Well that's it for what I've been playing this week. Next up, let's take a look at the charts. So at number 10 this week, down two places from last week's number 8, it's Borderlands 3. And holding steady at number 9 this week, it's Grand Theft Auto 5. Down one place from last week's number 7, it's The Legend of Zelda, Link's Awakening. And new in at number 7 this week, it's Plants vs. Zombies, Battle for Neighborville. Holding steady at number 6 this week, it's Minecraft on Nintendo Switch. And number 5 this week, it's another new entry from Nintendo, it's Ring Fit Adventure. Another new entry at number 4 is The Witcher 3, Wild Hunt Game of the Year Edition. And number three this week, it's Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint, down one from last week's number two, and not getting very good reviews that game, although it does seem to be selling well. Number two this week, it's Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, up one place from last week's number three, and this game is still going strong, even though it's been out for two years, and I think it's been in the charts every week since I've done the charts as part of the podcast. I will be super surprised and really disappointed the day that Mario Kart 8 Deluxe falls off the uh, falls off the top 10. <laughs> and still number one this week, it's FIFA 20 from EA Sports. And congratulations to EA for the uh, number one spot this week. That's it for the charts this week. Let's have a look at what we got coming up in the next couple of weeks. So in the next couple of weeks, the games are coming thick and fast. So on the 29th, we've got a few games. We've got After Party coming out on PlayStation 4 and on PC. We've got Harvest Moon, Mad Dash. That's coming out on PlayStation 4 and Nintendo Switch. 
We've got Resident Evil 5 coming out on Nintendo Switch and Resident Evil 6 as well. Super Monkey Ball Banana Blitz HD is coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch and PC. And we've got Vampire that's also coming out on Switch on the 29th. So on Halloween itself, on October the 31st, we've got Luigi's Mansion 3 and looking forward to that one. And uh, then on November the 5th, remember, remember, the 5th of November, we've got Just Dance 2020. That's PS4, Xbox One, Switch, Wii and eventually Google Stadia. Uh, we've also got Mario and Sonic at the Olympics Tokyo 2020. That's coming out on Nintendo Switch. We've got Planet Zoo. That's coming out on PC. And and we've got Red Dead Redemption 2 finally coming out on PC. And have you seen the trailer? It looks, it looks absolutely gorgeous. So if you haven't played Red Dead Redemption 2, I definitely recommend it, especially if you've got a PC. It's a wonderful game. It was my top game of 2018. Absolutely fantastic game. And I do believe I'm going to get it again and play through it again because I really miss Arthur. So on the 7th, we got Garfield Kart Furious Racing. That's coming out on PS4, Xbox One, Switch, and PC. And then on the 8th, well, we've got a few games, but Death Stranding finally coming out on the PS4 on the 8th of November. We'll finally find out what it's all about. And uh, we've got Disney Sum Sum Festival that's coming out on Switch. Uh, we've got Layton's Mystery Journey, Catrio, and the Millionaire's Conspiracy Deluxe Edition, which is uh, easy for me to say. And uh, Need for Speed Heat, that's coming out on PS4, Xbox One and PC. Finally, New Super Lucky's Tale is coming out on Nintendo Switch. So loads of games there. And uh, I think for me, Luigi's Mansion 3 looks really interesting. Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games Tokyo 2020, that looks really good too. Red Dead Redemption 2 looks really good. Death Stranding, there's, there's so many games. Uh, but I do believe next, uh, next time on the podcast, I'm going to be featuring Luigi's Mansion 3 and Death Stranding as well. Uh, although I won't have played too much of Death Stranding because it comes out the Friday before the podcast. But yeah, really looking forward to diving into those games. Well, that's it for this week's episode. And if you want to get involved in the show, email me on podcast at thisweekinvideogames.com or check out the latest on the website. Send in your questions, your comments, and your video game stories. I'm always interested in hearing from you. And I'm also available on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and Instagram to search This Week in Video Games on your favourite platform and join in the conversation. And if you want to support This Week in Video Games, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash This Week in Video Games. In exchange for supporting the show, you get shout-outs, Discord access, exclusive Patreon content polls, special design podcast scripts and stickers. So if you enjoy This Week in Video Games, sign up to Patreon. It would be wonderful to see you there. So thanks once again for hanging out with me and chatting about video games. So I hope you have a good couple of weeks and enjoy Halloween and fireworks night as well if you're in the UK. But uh, I'll talk to you in a few weeks' time. But for now, I'll see you soon.